moon landing is now almost as old as your hypothetical day. It's a bit scary, isn't it? With Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasani, Samuel Lisk, Tian Bezaitnoy, Rio Yuja, Michael Wright, George Bender, and James Stringer. The Jodcast, August 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Tian Bezaitnoy, and joining me in the studio are Rio Yuja and Michael Wright. In the show this time, James Stringer interviews Jonathan Pober, and Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lisk take a look at what's happening in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's George Bendo with the month's news. In the news this month, protests in Hawaii and the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. On the big island of Hawaii, Opponents of the construction of the 30 meter Telescope, or TMT, have physically blockaded the Mauna Kea Access Road, which allows people to travel to the observatories at the top of the mountain. This is the latest in a series of protests that have taken place regarding the construction of the TMT, as well as the operation and construction of other telescopes on the mountain. To review... Mauna Kea is currently considered to be the best astronomical observing site in the Northern Hemisphere. Because the mountain is both broad and tall, the airflow over the top of the mountain is laminar rather than turbulent. This means that optical and near-infrared light from stars is blurred very little by the atmosphere, allowing astronomers to produce sharper images. Additionally, the summit is above an atmospheric conversion layer that forms nightly on the Big Island, and this traps moisture at lower altitudes. As a result, the air at the top of the mountain is very dry, which is particularly ideal for submillimeter observations. However, Mauna Kea has a unique ecosystem and multiple prehistorical and cultural sites, and opponents of the development of Mauna Kea are genuinely concerned about the welfare of these sites. Aside from the summit itself, the most important high-altitude sites are Lake Waiau, which is an unusual high-altitude lake, and the Ads Quarries, where prehistoric Hawaiians acquired unusually dense volcanic rocks for making stone tools. Moreover, many people currently go to the summit for modern-day Hawaiian spiritual practices. Opponents of Mauna Kea developments are not only worried about the destruction of the pristine landscape, but have also pointed to poor stewardship of the site by the University of Hawaii, which is primarily responsible for management of the mountain. The complaints have included issues with the removal of trash, old equipment, and reports of multiple chemical spills, although most such spills were indoors and did no harm to the environment. The TMT specifically has been targeted with multiple protests and lawsuits since Mauna Kea was selected as a site for the observatory in 2009. Construction was initially meant to start in 2015, but in a lawsuit filed by opponents, the construction permit was revoked because the process for issuing the permit was not followed correctly. After reapplying for a building permit and clearing other lawsuits, Approval was given to the TMT to start construction the week of the 15th of July. However, protesters blockaded the Mauna Kea access road on the 13th of July before construction could start. 
crowds of thousands of people have appeared at the blockade to protest the TMT. For safety reasons, the other observatories on the mountain decided to suspend all operations and to order all employees and researchers to evacuate the mountain. The protests have led to a number of events and controversies. Early during the protests, police arrested and then released 38 people at the site, many of whom were described by the protesters as kapuna, the Hawaiian term for spiritual leaders. A tropical storm at the beginning of August disrupted the protests, although a core group remained at the site even during the severe weather. At a meeting of the Boards of Regents for the University of Hawaii, opponents of Mauna Kea development called for the resignation of the president of the university, and the Board of Regents approved the formation of an action group to investigate the current management of the mountain. Multiple celebrities have also visited the protesters to show their support, most notably actors Dwayne Johnson and Jason Momoa. Having said all of this, the protests have largely been peaceful so far. However, no end to the protests is currently in sight. In less controversial news, people in July celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first Apollo moon landing. The landing took place on the 20th of June, 1969, and was the most notable event in the history of manned space exploration. The anniversary prompted many different events around the world, including a reunion of people involved in the Apollo 11 mission at the Kennedy Space Center. Chajo Bank Observatory scheduled the Blue Dot Music Festival this year to coincide with the anniversary, and to mark the occasion, many of the events at Blue Dot were moon-themed. The anniversary has also provided impetus for new projects to return to the moon, particularly NASA's Artemis program, which has the goal of eventually building up a permanent presence on the moon. It also provides political support for ongoing exploration programs of the moon, including those being pursued by China and India. Thanks for that, George. And next up, we're going to have our interview. This week, James Stringer will be interviewing Jonathan Pober. So, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jonathan Pober. I'm coming here from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I guess doing the research I'm about to talk about for close to a decade now, so excited to share some progress with you. Awesome. So what is that research? Uh, so I'm in the field of what's called 21-centimeter cosmology. Basically, those two words put together, I want to do cosmology, study the origins, the evolution of the universe, and I'm doing it through the 21-centimeter line, which is a spectral line associated with neutral hydrogen. In short, I'm trying to map out all of the hydrogen gas in the entire universe and understand how it's evolved over cosmic time. Cool. So, uh, for a quick introduction, what is a 21-centimeter line? So, a 21-centimeter line is an atomic transition associated with a neutral hydrogen atom. Very small energy difference that comes from the proton and the electron being either aligned or anti-aligned. In terms of their spin. In terms of their spin, that's right. And most hydrogen atoms will never undergo a 21-centimeter transition, but there are so many hydrogen atoms in the universe that we can observe what the hydrogen is doing by mapping out the 21-centimeter line. So the 21-centimeter refers to the wavelength of the line, then? That's right. So that's in the radio regime? 
That's right. It's in the radio, and because I'm trying to do cosmology, study the history of the universe, I'm looking at a time when the universe was smaller than today. And so the expansion between when a hydrogen atom early in the universe emitted a 21-centimeter line and when we observe it now, the expansion of the universe has stretched that line uh, typically for the re regimes that I'm interested in by something like a factor of 10. So we're down at 2-meter wavelength, which is, in terms of frequency, very close to FM radio, digital TV, airplane transmission. So we're, we're dab smack in the mm -hmm. middle of where humans love to broadcast. So there's lots and lots of foreground interference you need to sort out and work through. That's right. Yeah, human-generated emission is a major problem for us. So the two experiments I work on are in the Karoo Desert in South Africa and mm -hmm. Western Australia at the Murchison site. So these are both future sites for the SKA. Sure. Yeah, we're not quite as lucky here in um, Cheshire with the Lovell Telescope. It's really close to Manchester. Yeah. So, so what, what telescopes do you work with then? Uh, so the two experiments that are currently operational, there's the MWA, the Murchison Wide Field Array that's in Western Australia, mm -hmm. and the Hydrogen Epic of Reionization Array, or HERA, and that's under construction right now in South Africa. These are acronyms? Yeah, we've had worse. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, how can this redshift tell us about the universe's cosmology then? So when we see a 21-centimeter photon that is not at a wavelength of 21 centimeters, but rather, say, at a wavelength of 2 meters, mm -hmm. we can figure out exactly when in cosmic history it was emitted, attributing that shift in wavelength to the expansion of the universe. So it gives you a time of emission. Right? That's right. And so if we build a telescope that's sensitive to a large band of wavelengths, we can map out a lot of cosmic history with the same instrument. Yeah, so these signals are really faint. Is this sort of any real-life comparison for how faint they're going to be, just to give some listeners a context? Um, so a calculation I often do is a typical radio source, so the thing that most radio astronomers are studying with radio telescopes, is something like a cell phone on the moon. That's about right, yeah. Uh, and that's about five orders of magnitude stronger than the signal I'm looking for. And how, then, do you separate them from foreground emission? I guess that's been the majority of your that, work. That is the number one challenge in our field. That there's all sorts of other astrophysical radio emission. Even if we go to these radio quiet sites to get away from human-generated emission, we can't get away from other astrophysical processes that emit at these wavelengths. And so they swamp our signals by about five orders of magnitude. And separating them has been the challenge that I've been working on for the last decade. The spectral behavior of these emission mechanisms is expected to be different. So as a function of wavelength, astrophysical foreground emission, the stuff that's getting in our way, is pretty smooth. It doesn't look very different from wavelength to wavelength. Whereas our signal looks very different. Every wavelength is probing a different period in cosmic history, mm -hmm. and so we're sampling a different portion of the universe. And if that were the end of the story, we'd have detected our signal by now. Um, statistical techniques can let you extract a very faint signal that has a lot of spectral structure mm -hmm. underneath a very strong background of smooth signals. We, we can do that in a simulation. The problem is we're observing these signals through radio telescopes, and particularly radio telescopes at meter wavelength that are built out of literally PVC pipe, chicken wire, mm -hmm. cop copper plumber's tubing. These are not necessarily precision construction materials. Yeah, I think compared to some other telescopes people have seen, actual telescopes aren't always as uh, elegant. <laughs> yeah, and so modeling the response of our telescope to that one part in 10 to the 5, that five orders of magnitude difference between our signal and our foreground, so that we can separate them, is the challenge right now. How do we actually model our telescope so we can remove its effects mm -hmm. from our data and then cleanly separate the foregrounds and the signal?
Wow. So what kind of methods do you use other than statistical methods which you mentioned? Uh, so there's a lot of different techniques that we're currently exploring. And so the name of the game is generally called calibration. The idea of getting the response of your telescope out over time, that you know, our, we're sensitive to temperature variations in the electronics of our telescope mm-hmm. as they heat up over the day and cool down at night. Our telescope changes at the level that we care about. And mm. So you model those changes as well. Um, we would love to be able to model those changes. Basically, we have our data, mm. and we have to use our data to both constrain the sky that is not known and constrain the response of the telescope at a level that is not known. Separating the two things is the, the challenging part. Then. And so, yeah, getting a model of your telescope that doesn't accidentally model some of your data out or move signals from your data that are actually astrophysical is really a lot, a lot of the work that we're doing right now, trying to explore how to do that and come up with new techniques for calibration mm-hmm. and you know, new ways to ensure the problems that we're very worried about don't affect us. Well, like, what kind of new ways have you discovered? So typically the way a radio telescope is calibrated is you point it at a well-studied radio source and you say, I know what this source looks like, I'm getting this data, therefore I sort of have a mapping function from the true properties of the source to your data. Mm-hmm. Our telescopes that are basically antennas on the ground. They don't point anywhere and they're sensitive to a huge area of the sky at once. So instead of being able to isolate one radio source that we know well, we have hundreds of thousands of sources all at one time that we don't know that well. And so building a better sky model, but also having techniques that protect you against particular kinds of errors, the kind of errors that would prevent us extracting the signal, um, hasn't been a real question of interest for radio astronomy because they don't have these problems, mm-hmm. whereas these wide field of view telescopes do, and so we've had to develop a lot of techniques from scratch. That's really cool. So this is comparable to the sort of like so working from the background in the CMB as well. So obviously you've got a really faint microwave signal there too, and you've got lots of galaxies in the Milky Way that emits it as well. So do you have the same kind of problems as that then? Yeah, I think in terms of that five orders of magnitude challenge that's very comparable to what people currently working on CMB polarization experiments looking mm-hmm. for uh, the B mode or gravitational wave background signal. We're sort of at the same regime as those experiments are. And we don't have a quiet spot on the sky. We can't just point away from the Milky Way galaxy cool. and see our signals. Even yeah. at the quietest parts of the sky, we're still five orders of magnitude below the foreground. Right. So, so changing subject slightly, what kind of um, sources, well not sources, but what part of the universe are you particularly focusing on? So the first generation of these experiments are targeting what's known as the epoch of reionization, mm-hmm. which is a period shortly after the first stars and galaxies formed in the universe, and actually when galaxies started mattering on a cosmic scale. And so we're looking for the light that came out of the first galaxies and fed back into the universe and mm-hmm. energized and ionized all the hydrogen gas in the universe. Mm-hmm. So it's really a question of when did structure, galaxies, become important in cosmic history, Mm -hmm. and what were those first galaxies like? How were they different from modern galaxies, and how can we sort of bridge the gap between the CMB at the very beginning of the universe and all the galaxies we see now? It was kind of the middle period. So we know about the CMB, and then there was the Dark Ages, and then we know about realization because we can observe it from this, and we try to work out what happened in between, right? That's right. Sort of not just the tail end of realization, but what started it, 
what happened even before then is often given the umbrella name of Cosmic Dawn, mm. the, the first light in the universe. Sure. So some of this might not know that much about um, early cosmology. So there was the Big Bang, there was inflation, and then there was recombination, right? So you want to give a quick overview of what that was? Sure, yeah. I mean, in, in kind of the standard model of cosmology, the universe after the Big Bang was very, very hot and very, very dense. And that fact that it was very, very hot meant that all the hydrogen gas was ionized. Instead of having hydrogen atoms with a proton and an electron, you had a proton, and off somewhere else was the electron. It was just basically protons. And so that ionized gas eventually recombines, we say, as the universe cools and forms the CMB, and we're left with neutral hydrogen everywhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. And nothing really happens to that neutral hydrogen until eventually kind of the first stars start forming. They create a radiation background that reionizes that hydrogen gas. And that's the period that we're trying to study. But as I said, we haven't done this science yet. I've been trying to do this for 10 years. We've never detected the 21 centimeter signal. Mm -hmm. Um, We've kind of built the generation of experiments that the goal of which was to teach us how to build the next generation of experiments. And now is when that next generation is coming online. Yeah. That we learned a tremendous amount over the last 10 years. I, I don't want to convey this as a, oh, no. a fruitless effort that, you know, we've just been stymied and not gotten anywhere. We've hopefully taught ourselves how to do this work. Yeah. And it's now is the time when all those lessons are going into effect, all these new facilities an upgraded MWA and HERA that I mentioned are coming online and starting to pour out data. And so it's an exciting time mm. that we are seeing all these experiments come to fruition yeah. and they can hopefully make the first detection of this signal and inform us about mm. kind of what comes next, how to something like the square kilometer array really exploit observing the signal. I think yeah, I guess it's important to note this way. We've only had the technology to do this kind of thing that were quite recently compared to simple radio telescopes picking up whole stars back in the 50s. I like guess a much older field of observational astronomy compared to this, I guess. Yeah, and, and these low frequencies, it's interesting. This is kind of where radio astronomy began and meter wavelengths. And then sort of the advent of computers and you know, faster signal processing, people moved to shorter wavelengths mm-hmm. because of all the terrestrial interference, problems from the Earth's ionosphere, the sky just gets much cleaner, up at sort of centimeter wavelengths. And if the science, if this cosmology with 21 centimeter line hadn't emerged as a compelling science case, mm-hmm. no one would have volunteered to go back and observe at meter wavelengths. To willfully observe at the yeah. worst possible. <laughs> so why not build a telescope in space then? Is just the size you need makes it unfeasible? So it's something we're very actively talking about. Uh-huh. Um, Probably the best place in the solar system to do this would be on the far side of the moon. Okay. There's no ionosphere, so no atmosphere to bother you, and you're shielded from the Earth's radiation. And, and the sun, I imagine, has some impact on that as well. Yeah, the sun is a horrible, horrible radio source at these wavelengths. And you know, I think the size that you would need to build gets pretty prohibitive. Yeah. Um, but if the science is there, it's not out of the question. One of the things you can do from the moon that you can't do from the Earth is go after very high redshifts, mm. where the ionosphere goes from being a nuisance to being an opaque wall. So something like redshift 100, where we're at sort of 15 megahertz, you can't observe from Earth. But you can observe from space and potentially you know, study cosmology before the birth of the first stars and get real 
clean cosmological signal, much like the CMB, and improve those kind of constraints. So we're we're, we're talking about it. I think <laughs> NASA in the United States five years ago declared such a concept as, as visionary, mm-hmm. which meant that's always a good one to be labeled. Um, that was sort of their 30-year time scale. Yeah, uh, 2043 seems a little optimistic right now. I think you know part of the issue is in, until the ground-based experiments that we're working on now really confirm that you can do this and we vet the techniques and we vet the telescope designs to enable 21 centimeter cosmology. Probably don't want to spend billions of dollars putting something on the moon. Maybe not. Until you feel pretty confident it's going to work. Uh, But that's definitely a long, very long term goal for us. So even the SKA would be too high frequency PCs? So the low frequency Part of the SKA overlaps with these epoch of ionization sure. frequencies quite a bit. And so it's certainly mapping out neutral hydrogen is a major science driver for the low-frequency SKA. For kind of that high redshift signal we were talking about, uh, the calculations I've done say basically we need about five square kilometers <laughs> five on the far side of the moon. Wow. So, yeah, a futuristic concept, but... I said the science is quite exciting. That really gives some solid evidence for a model of the universe, then, or early cosmology at least. Uh, potentially, yeah. There's, there's a treasure trove of information out there in the 21 centimeter signal. We just have to get the techniques and the technology to get to it. Mm-hmm. So, in your abstract, you mentioned some um, major setbacks. And, uh, uh, importantly, overcoming those setbacks, yeah. I should say. So, so, yeah, and, and over the last couple of years, you know, these first generation of experiments released these things were upper limits on the 21 centimeter signal. We're saying we didn't detect it, but the fact that we didn't detect it meant it couldn't have been brighter than some value. And that fits your predicted theories then? And yeah, some of the most extreme theories that predicted extremely bright signal values were getting ruled out. Mm-hmm. And so those upper limits became scientifically interesting. But a lot of what was published was not correct. That our data analysis techniques were uh, removing 21 centimeter signal uh-huh. without us knowing it. So they gave us the name signal loss that you know, we took out a huge fraction of the 21 centimeter signal. And so that upper limit saying it wasn't brighter than value X wasn't robust because we took out a lot of the signal. And we didn't appreciate it. And so the last year really has seen a, several papers retracting those upper limits, you know, explaining what went wrong in the analysis, why we didn't catch that in the analysis and what we can do in the future to avoid those kind of setbacks again. So certainly a learning experience, mm-hmm. but we're perhaps it seems further away from our goal than it seemed two years ago. When in truth we're closer, but yeah. two years ago there was a lot of excitement that we really had these techniques figured out and we were making steady progress towards getting the fainter and fainter signals and that just wasn't true. Yeah. It's good to overcoming them and actually like progressing forward then. Um, yeah, so you talk about the characterization of the signals, characterization of these signals. So what do you mean by characterization? So, I mean, I think the the detailed properties of the 21 centimeter signal hmm. tells us science. Like, what we want to know to begin with is a first detection. Can we actually see it? Uh, but then uh, the properties of the signal as a function of scale on the sky tells us about the underlying galaxies that are driving ionization, whether it was more massive galaxies, were the first galaxies very, very small and not very massive? Uh, what was their spectra? Did they have different types of stars than modern galaxies? Mm-hmm. And these are all observationally, essentially unconstrained questions. 
And so that information is all encoded in the 21 centimeter signal, uh, but it means we need to recover it with high fidelity. And then we need to model all the physics that go into making the 21 centimeter signal so we can extract that physics out from it again. Uh, so right, right now, you know, again, our, we're really working towards the first detection, but in hopefully a couple of years we'll have one and then we'll have good measurements of the signal. And then we need techniques for how do we go from these measurements back to the astrophysics. So would it be similar to the work on the CMB there? Because that's talking about observing structure of different scales. That's right. So we're looking at a very similar observable called the power spectrum. Mm-hmm. That's you know, fluctuations in the signal on various scales in the universe. Where things get different from the CMB is the CMB is beautifully modeled by six numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you can throw in a few more to add in extra physics, but there's six numbers and we know what they are, and so we can extract those six numbers by simulating millions of CMVs and finding the best fit, effectively. Reionization, the first galaxies, the physics is a lot messier, and we don't have that simple six-number characterization. We've got approximate characterizations, but to rely on only a couple parameters, but how good are those characterizations? How robustly will they tell us about the actual universe? I seem to remember that the, so one of the one of those six numbers is H, the Hubble constant. I seem to remember that the determination from that from Planck, so the CMB experiment, was different to that from registered galaxies by a non-negligible negligible amount. Yeah, so that that's definitely a major open question in cosmology right now, is this tension between the Hubble constant coming from the CMB and galaxy surveys real? It's getting to the point where it's statistically significant. So 21-centimeter cosmology probably won't constrain the Hubble constant directly. But as it turns out, the reionization history of the universe is a major nuisance parameter for the CMB. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're observing the CMB through all the ionized hydrogen gas created during reionization imparts a subtle signal in the CMB that makes all the other parameters you constrain from the CMB slightly harder to constrain. And so there's been some interesting ideas proposed that it's 21 centimeter cosmology can give you that reionization history, it can help these fundamental cosmology studies in you know, removing that unknown from the CMB analysis and helping them only have to constrain five numbers instead of six. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you're covering in your talk that you want to talk about? Um, excellent question. I'm trying to remember everything that's in my talk. Um, there's certainly a lot of up-and-coming results that I want to highlight in my talk, then uh, particularly the MWA is close to having some new results. Uh, so everything I'll be showing in the talk is preliminary, so I, I don't want to advertise too strongly, but um, close to having some really interesting results, uh, reanalyzing some of its old data sets with new improved analysis techniques mm-hmm. and you know, showing how far we've come in the analysis and, and learning how to do this science. And so there's definitely a note of optimism and mm the light of these retractions, that progress is still being made and we are still moving forward. But so you're optimistic then about the future? I guess I have to be. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years, so I hope to be doing it for a while longer, and so I, I think we'll, we'll definitely get there somewhere. But I'm also an eternal pessimist at heart, so I <laughs> uh, you know, have to think, take everything I say with a grain of salt. I think a lot of us in the astronomy are. <laughs> I guess one thing I, I should make sure I acknowledge, and I, I definitely do in the talk, is that these are large teams of people. Mm. Um, the Murchison Wyfield Array collaboration is probably over 200 people now. Uh, the Hera team is something like 80 
people. And so there's a lot of efforts on a lot of different fronts going into these experiments where we're kind of past the age of a few radio astronomers setting up antennas in the desert and seeing what we can see. That, that was 10 years ago, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, these really are becoming full-fledged collaborations. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure I acknowledge uh, the efforts of all the people who've gone into the experiments, as well as you know, all the local people who've contributed to helping build the experiments in South Africa, uh, the traditional owners of the site in Western Australia, that uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen here. Mm. Okay, that's probably a good point to wrap up, isn't it? Okay, that's okay. great. Thanks for watching, Stringer. Now we come to the part of the show where we're fixing those other bits we can't fix anywhere else. They're all then ends. So I'll start us off. Uh, this is a story that came out at the end of last month about a particularly bright or energetic photon that was discovered by the Tibet Air Shower Gamma Experiment. They put out the paper on the 29th of July declaring the detection of the most energetic photon of light ever detected from an astrophysical source. Photons coming from the Crab Nebula were measured at upward of 100 teraelectron volt, easily surpassing the previous record of 75 teraelectron volt. Now, to explain the significance of this requires some background. First, the source, the Crab Nebula. A nebula is a vast cloud of interstellar material, and the Crab is a particular kind of nebula called a supernova remnant, meaning that it is left over from the explosive death of a massive star. The Crab is one of the most famous supernova remnants because it's very close to us, being located in the Perseus arm of the Milky Way galaxy, only about 2 kiloparsecs away, or about 6,500 light-years. It's also very young. In fact, records show that Chinese astronomers observed the supernova as it was happening back in 1054 AD, and Japanese and Middle Eastern astronomers wrote about the crab in the 13th century. So being so close and so young, it's quite bright in the sky, magnitude around 8.4 making it visible in the Taurus constellation with binoculars on a good day. The nebula itself glows brightly from radio waves to gamma rays, but in addition, at its center is the crab pulsar, a dead star 20 kilometers across and weighing 90% as much as our sun. It rotates very rapidly, once every 33 milliseconds, and emits beams of light from its magnetic poles so that it appears to blink or pulse at the same rate. Now, if you want to observe the most energetic photons coming from the crab, gamma rays, the problem you have to overcome is that almost all of them will be blocked out by our atmosphere. One option is to put your telescope in space, above the atmosphere. So that's what NASA did with the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which is at low Earth orbit and can detect gamma rays up to about 300 giga electron volt. Uh, if you're not familiar with that unit, Uh, It's sufficient to know that while radio and optical astronomers tend to talk about the observation in terms of wavelength or frequency, so you'll hear terms like submillimeter or 1.4 gigahertz, people working in X-rays or higher tend to think in terms of the energy of individual photons. Is that because are they then doing detections which measure individual photons? Yeah, exactly. So in, in terms of pure photon count, 
you can um, distinguish individual photons. So it makes sense to yeah. to think of them. Whereas yeah. with the radio telescope, I suppose you're just getting a massive dish, and you get the combined effect of quite a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's also a result of history, because uh, radio astronomy, as we all know, came first after optical astronomy, and they conceived of light as being waves, and they thought of wavelengths and frequencies. Gamma rays and X-ray astronomy came after, usually as a result of measuring very energetic particles, individual particles, which would be measured in terms of their energy as opposed to their frequency or wavelength. So one electron volt is the amount of energy an electron gains after passing through a potential of one volt, and it's equal to about 16 microjoules. That means that an FM radio station transmitting at 100 megahertz emits photons with an energy of about one one millionth of an electron volt. Uh, so Fermi can see photons up to 300 billion electron volts. But what about photons which are even more energetic? Upwards of that energy, photons become very hard to detect and we have to devise some clever tricks. One strategy is to look instead for the traces that these extremely high energy photons leave behind. When extremely high energy photons interact with our atmosphere, they get absorbed but they also result in a shower of secondary particles, among them muons, which are extremely short-lived charged particles, which rush towards the Earth. So by detecting a shower of muons and measuring the energy, we can infer the energy of the photon that initiated the reaction. So the Tibet air shower gamma experiment consists of 64 tanks of water situated at Yanbojing, Tibet which is 4,300 meters above the sea level. And each tank is about 7 meters by 7 meters in area, and it's buried 2.4 meters underground with a photomultiplied tube on the ceiling. So if muons from air showers hit the water, they release so-called Cherenkov radiation, which the photomultiplied tube can pick up. So by timing very precisely the times at which the muons hit the different tanks, you can kind of reconstruct the directions that the muons were coming from, uh, and you can localize the origin of the primary photon. So the Tibet Air Shower Gamma Experiment has been observing since the early 90s and have recorded a, a high number of detections of both high-energy photons and cosmic rays as well, cosmic rays or particles uh, accelerated to close the speed of light in places such as supernovae and galactic nuclei. And until now, the most energetic photon that they had detected was around a dozen tera-electron volts, which is a trillion electron volts in energy, which is about the same energy as the CERN particle accelerated reaches. And then out of the blue last month, they announced the detection of a number of photons above 100 tera-electron volts in energy for the first time. One of the photons was almost 500 tera-electron volts in energy, about the same energy as that of a falling ping-pong ball, so it's incredibly energetic. And all of these photons were localized to the Crab Nebula. It's still uncertain how exactly the crab produces these photons, but one leading idea is that of inverse constant scattering, so charged particles which are already highly energetic and traveling along the magnetic field lines of the pulsar get accelerated by some shock wave, and these accelerated shock waves then interact with photons left over from the Big Bang, 
transferring energy to the photons and bumping them up to a few hundreds of tera-electron volts. So some theories predict that you could get photons up to the exa-electron volt or one million tera-electron volt range, each of which of those would have an energy of an air rifle bullet. I really hope one of those doesn't get to Earth Mm. soon. Air rifle bullet, that's not that bad though. I mean, for a right. photon, though, it's, it's, yeah, it's concentrated into a very, very, very small area, right? So yeah. it would get, go straight through you, right? I mean, we have gamma rays going through us, like, every every second of the day. Yeah, so. that's true. So. Just don't want, like, millions of them going at you from the same Yeah, that, that would be bad, yeah. Shall we move over to Mike? Okay. Let's move over to me. I have a fairly nice, quick story from um, Kagra which is a gravitational wave detector being built in Japan. It's being built in the same place as the Super Kamiokande, where the neutrino detection is done. It's being built in that big sort of underground mine. And it's attempting to be sort of a Japanese similar style experiment to LIGO, with two massively long arms coming out of this thing and measuring time differences in order to detect the influence of gravitational waves. A couple of differences between their one. Their one is for starters underground. The idea is you get less seismic vibrations underground, so they're building it in this massive mine to keep that up. And they're also cooling their mirrors. So they're going to have, once this thing's finished, sapphire mirrors that are cooled to about 20 Kelvin. And the advantage of that is mirrors generally, when there's thermal fluctuations in them, they'll heat up and cool down and if you keep the mirrors very cold you reduce this effect so that's basically what the idea is can they make these gravitational wave detections as well and also if they can say if them and LIGO and detectors maybe in Europe as well start detecting these together can we start maybe more accurately pinpointing positions of where they come from because now you've got a huge distance between them and LIGO in the United States. So recently, sort of middle of the month, they put out a paper which was basically explaining that they have done a test run cooling down their system and basically checking are things aligned, would this work? So they use sort of test mirrors rather than the actual ones they're going to use, all that sort of thing to work out how this will go. And that's sort of really interesting from my point of view. When you get sort of large projects like this, and this, this one as well, as well as this has happened to, they sort of occasionally get delays, things slow down, you've got some sort of timetable you're supposed to stick to. But there's not really much beyond sort of blind hope, I suppose, from an outside point of view to see where projects going sometimes yeah. but of course now you have the other way as well of scientists putting out papers of what they're doing so we can sort of get a feel as to how far along this project is with scientific results rather than just with here's a press release from the people who are making it saying it's going along all right which is rather interesting and they're saying that their cool down worked it yeah. took about over a month to get this thing down to 20 Kelvin and from their point of view the alignment of the mirrors they're happy with yeah. 
that should be able to be used to detect gravitational waves. Do you know a timeline of when they're hoping to start observations? Not really. Not as a clear timeline. Yeah. I don't know how long it will take, but I sort of roughly know now they've tested this cool down, they need to, I suppose, warm it back up, replace all this with the real parts that right. they need, the proper mirrors, run it again. And actually a lot of their delay was because I think part of the mine got flooded. Okay. So that was one of the delays before. So I think while I could sort of say, oh, it might be ready in, say, a year or so, there's a lot of things completely beyond the experimenter's control yeah. that can just really kick these things down the line. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you know much about the kind of cryogenics that they use? Is it much different from a conventional telescope um, cryogenics? Not too so like refrigeration. Not too massively. They use the type of core they use is called a pulse tube core, which is fairly commonly used in okay. astronomy. But I think the thing that sort of separates this one from a lot of the ordinary work on telescopes is because they're trying to keep vibrations to a level of mirrors themselves aren't having that expanding cooling effect. Right. They're very concerned about vibration control of these things. Sure. So there's a lot more of that than you might see on, say, an ordinary telescope. Yeah. They've got the coolers themselves are fairly far away with a big long link to keep the heat from the yeah, yeah. cold end of the cooler connected. They've got a seismic stopper for vibrations from elsewhere. And on that hangs a long sort of chain of different systems and balances and that sort of thing to keep this thing stable. That's interesting. So uh, to what extent would they be able to control for, like, general rumblings in the Earth or, you know, not even earthquakes, just... Earthquakes would really mess them up. I yeah. can't remember the exact figures from rumblings, but yet to give you the idea of the scale, if we're talking they were attempting to sort of control, if you like, the expansion of the materials, which yeah. is on a very molecular level. They've got to reduce the vibrations from the cryostats so much that that doesn't dwarf any benefit they get. Yeah. So that that sort of give you an idea of the yeah. tiny distances yeah, we're talking. Very, very fine. I suppose the other thing compared to a lot of us telescopes in astronomy, this is a quite a large system. So you're cooling a mirror of 22 centimetres across and nearly as deep. It's not... And that, of course, is in this big sort of chain of things hanging off things, hanging off things, and wires coming out of it. Yeah. So it's a fairly chunky space they're cooling down in each of these mirrors. Do you know the length of the arms? Uh, three kilometres. How does that compare to I LIGO? LIGO, I, I know it's either three or four. Yeah, so LIGO is shorter on it, so it's slightly shorter than LIGO. Um, but still sort of a very long distance, long enough to detect these gravitational waves. So how does it work with the length of the arms? Do different lengths probe kind of different frequencies of gravitational waves, or um, are they different sensitivities? Or? It's more basically a gravitational wave detection. You're detecting a difference between two beams of light that are going yeah. far away, bouncing off, coming back, you detect some very tiny difference yeah. in the distance of those two signals, which obviously translates in changes in the light that you get, you can make interference back from that. What that means is that these differences, you can get a slightly large difference for the same signal the longer apart 
your yeah. answer because that change in signal may be spread over right over the course of those arcs. Yeah. But is it also about the directions or the gravitational waves? Would you be better able to localize it with uh, if you have longer arms? I'm not sure. I think localizing it where it comes to is going to be more about observing it with different detectors than the configuration of the one that you use. It. Oh yeah. Right. And I think the shape of the arms is less about detecting where things are from, more about the sort of nature of gravitational sure. waves. You okay. need those two arms in different directions. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, their final conclusions were this has worked. They've sort of measured in a bit over a month. We've cooled this down to 20 Kelvin. It's worked. The alignment's worked. Looks like we're good going forward. Let's put this thing into practice next. Shall we go to Rufa? Yeah. Um, so recently astronomers have made a new measurement of how the universe is expanding or the expansion rate which is the Hubble constant. And it's Winifred Mullen and her team from University of Chicago. They use the red giant stars to measure the Hubble constant. So I think I find it's quite interesting because I think now we've got more things for astronomers to do because there has been always a Hubble tension between the two different measurements of the Hubble constant. One of them is measure the Hubble constant by secret variables and another one is by the cosmic microwave background, which is the CMB. And the value of Wendy Firma and her team made is in between those two parameters that people have got before. So. So basically, I think they have a new problem now. Yeah, now they have three values instead of two, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, a triple pinch. Yeah. So I think either they need to find a new model about the SMB, or they just need to consider is it because of the way of they measure the secret variables. Yeah. So how exactly did they use the red giants to measure Hubble uh, constant? I think they, they did this by comparing the distance values to the apparent recessional velocity of the target right. galaxies. So is there any sort of idea which one is sort of more likely maybe to be flawed? I think that's a problem actually because people really don't have no idea which yeah. one is which. And because for secret variables, the data it's like measure the Hubble constant in a smaller scale. But for CMB, it's like in a larger scale. So right. you really don't have any idea about this. But I think the interesting is maybe they will find a new model about the physics. So it's been a while since I had a cosmology class. The way that they measure the Hubble constant from the CMB is that from the how fine it is or something like that. I think it's mostly about the energy density. The energy density, right. Of the things they are measuring, but I don't remember all the details. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it seems like directly measuring the speeds of the stars would give you a better understanding of the Hubble constant, right? Yeah, but if you like look at the whole observable universe, that would make things more complicated. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the CMB is probing like larger scales, yep. big evol evolution of the universe, whereas the stars may be more local, more small scale. Yeah, that's true. And CMB is also like you are looking at the new universe in a very early time. Yeah, is it is it possible that the Hubble constant has changed over time? 
I'm pretty sure the Hubble constant changes over time. It's like one of the sort of fairly sort of well-regarded ideas in astronomy that, right. it, because it depends on the rate of expansion of like the universe, it sort of should should change as the universe changes composition from sort of right, dominated yeah. by yeah. matter, dominated by radiation, dominated yeah, by matter. But I think because they are measuring the Hubble constant of the time of today, so uh, that should probably not change then. Yeah. Oh right. That would, be, yeah. that would be quite odd if it changed the Hubble constant now. Second by the second. Yeah. yeah it's different to itself. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. How are they going to resolve this tension? Well, are we going to have a new model? Yeah, we're like we're just going to get know. a fourth measurement, right? It'll be completely different. By the end, we'll, we'll have like a hundred <laughs> and then just average them out or something. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for that. And now, here's Ian Morrison with the month's night sky. The night sky for August 2019. Well, at least the nights are drawing in a bit, so we have more time to view the heavens. As darkness falls, you might see a bright star over in the west. It's Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes. Moving over to the south, we have one of the most beautiful regions in the sky with the constellations of Cygnus with its bright star Deneb, Lyra with its bright star Vega, and Aquila with its bright star Altair. Those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. If with binoculars you work your way up on a dark night from Altair towards Vega about a third of the way, you cross a dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift. And there you might see a nice little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, less properly the Coat Hanger. Down to the left of the line between Altair and Deneb is a sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. Rising in the southeast now is the constellation of Pegasus, the upside-down winged horse. If you start at the top left-hand star, called Alpharas, of the square of Pegasus, move across one star, round a little bit, up to the next bright star, then 90 degrees right, past one star, you may then come at the same distance to a fuzzy spot in the sky. It will need to be near New Moon, so it's dark. That's the great nebula in Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, another way to find it is if you look up towards the North Pole, Polaris, you'll find the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And the V-shape, the lower right part of Cassiopeia, actually that points down towards Andromeda. So that's two ways to find it. So let's now have a look at the planets. Well, Jupiter, shining on the first at magnitude minus 2.41, falling slightly to minus 2.21 during the month, can be seen in the south as darkness falls. Its angular size drops slightly from 42.6 to 39.9 arc seconds as the month progresses. In the southern part of Ophiuchus, Jupiter ends its retrograde motion, that's moving westwards across the sky, on the 11th of August. So we'll then begin to move away from Antares in Scorpius, initially lying some 7 degrees up and to its left. A highlight in the Jodrell Bank night sky page, just search night sky Jodrell, gives the times when the great red spot faces the Earth and so perhaps easiest to spot. Sadly, it's now heading towards the most southernmost part of the ecliptic, so as it crosses the meridian in twilight, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees from central UK. Happily, its elevation will only have dropped by a degree 
an hour later in full darkness. Because of its elevation, atmospheric dispersion will thus take its toll. And what is called an atmospheric dispersion corrector, just over 100 pounds or so, would greatly help to improve the views of this wonderful giant planet. Now Saturn crosses the meridian, so highest in the sky, at around 11pm BST as August begins. Its disk is then 18.2 arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still nicely tilted from the line of sight, span some 42.5 arc seconds across. By month's end, it will best be seen at around 9.30pm, when lying due south. During the month, its brightness falls to magnitude plus 0.16 to plus 0.33, as the angular size falls to 17.6 arc seconds. Sadly, now in Sagittarius and lying on the southern side of the Milky Way, it's at the lowest point of the ecliptic and will only reach an elevation of around 14 degrees. Now this is a very good month for observing Mercury in the pre-dawn sky if you've never seen it. It's currently heading west of the Sun following its inferior conjunction last month and during the first couple of weeks of August rises higher in the sky in the pre-dawn twilight. By the 4th of August, shining at magnitude plus 1.2, it will have an elevation of about 5 degrees above the east-northeastern horizon, some 40 minutes before dawn. The way to find it is to look for first Castor and Pollux in Gemini and then drop around 10 degrees below them. Now you might well need binoculars to, pick, to reduce the sun's background glare, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. Now Mercury gradually rises higher in the sky and brightens too. So by the 13th of the month it reaches an elevation of about 8 degrees some 40 minutes before dawn at about 5 o'clock a.m. BST. And its brightness has increased to minus 0.36. From around the 10th to the 16th of August a telescope might be able to show its 7 arc second disk exhibiting a phase of about 52%. As Mercury falls back towards the horizon in the next week or so, its brightness increases, in fact, to minus 1.0, and will show a gibbous phase of about 77%. But by the last week of the month, it will become lost again in the sun's glare. Well, we're not going to see Mars or Venus. Mars, for four months, Mars, which passes behind the sun, that's called superior conjunction, on September the 2nd, lies too close to the sun to be visible. We will have to wait until November to spot it in the pre-dawn sky at the start of its next apparition. Venus likewise. It passes through superior conjunction, again, on the far side of the sun on the 14th of August, so will not become visible again in the evening twilight until late autumn. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, looking towards the south, a little bit towards the southwest, you can find the constellation of Hercules and spot the globular cluster M13. It's the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky. Four stars make up its keystone, and M13 is two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side. Just to the left of the bright star Vega in Lyra is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope under good seeing, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. Between about August the 1st and the 6th after sunset, Jupiter lies quite close to Antares, 
looking towards the south-southwest. On the 9th of August, Jupiter is quite near the moon, seen down to the lower left of the moon, which will be a day after first quarter. As I've mentioned above, between August the 10th and the 16th, Mercury is at its best. Now we do have one of the two great meteor showers this year, the Perseids, best seen on the mornings of the 12th and 13th of the month. The meteors are produced by the debris left by the comet Swift-Tuttle. The peak is quite broad, so it's well worth observing on the nights both before the 12th and after the 13th. Most meteors are seen looking about 15 degrees away from the radiant, which lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia. But sadly, this year, the moon will be just before full, so we will only expect to see the brighter meteors. On the 24th of August, the moon passes through the Hyades cluster. This is in the hours before dawn. And in fact, it will occult two quite bright stars, Delta I and Delta II Tauri. And on the night sky page, I give uh, a little plot showing the times of ingress and egress of the moon for these two stars. The times are slightly approximate. Because the moon's quite close, we have parallax to contend with. And depending where you are in the UK, for example, the times might be a bit before or a bit after the times I've quoted. I usually mention something to observe on the moon. This month, on the 8th and 21st, there are good times because the terminator, and near the terminator things show up best, is what is called the Hyginus Rill, and crater. For some time a debate raged as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know, of course, that virtually all were caused by impact. But it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies in the centre of the Hyginus Rill may very well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast to impact craters which have raised rings. And essentially, we believe it's the result of the surface slumping down into an internal void caused partly by one of these lava tubes. Well, quite a number of things to look at. Let's hope it's clear around the time of the Perseids, and perhaps you don't mind waking up too early to see the occultations in the Hyades cluster. Thanks for that, Ian. And after the night sky north, we have now the night sky south with Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesk. New Zealand. Hello everyone. We're here at Space Place at Pat Observatory holding galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favorite place to be, with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshano. And I'm Samuel Liskey. Space Place is our historical astronomy icon here in New Zealand and we are located right at the heart of our capital city. And we're so lucky to be among the capital cities in the world from where you can still see the Milky Way. Instructions to read before looking up. August night sky. For those of us who don't read the instructions, we just have amazing stuff that we wish to share. And those who do 
neither instructions nor stories. Here's the gossip. Did you know there's a comet in the night sky that you can see with a telescope? A famous meteor shower that unfortunately is not visible at the mountain. Prepare your telescopes. We have two amazing planets to observe. If you don't have telescopes, join us at Space Place at Cardiff Observatory where we have telescope viewing every Tuesday, Friday and Saturday nights clear skies. The center of the galaxy has fantastic objects such as open and globular clusters, Sagittarius and Scorpius are excellent constellations, but now they're adorned by the two jewels on each side of the Milky Way that are Jupiter and Saturn, amazing objects. There is also a comet that we can see with a telescope, P-2008. It's a comet in Scorpius and its magnitude is 9.7. Oldies but goldies, the circumpolar zone of the South Celestial Pole has some spectacular objects too. Open clusters, globular clusters and of course the Magellanic Clouds. But this time of the year they are in the lower part of the sky near the horizon so not the best to observe as we are looking through a thick layer of atmosphere. Whereas with the galactic centre we are looking straight up so it's in the perfect position. The very famous meteor shower of the Perseids will not be visible at Wellington so unfortunately no hot chocolate on your star lounger admiring falling stars. But definitely the entire Milky Way makes up for that in beauty. So you can have a look at that instead. A bit about August. Respected and impressive August is an adjective which means exactly that. If July is named after Julius Caesar, Roman military genius August is named after Julius Caesar's grandnephew Augustus, who later became his adopted son. He was the first Roman emperor following the Republic, which was destroyed by his great uncle when he proclaimed himself a dictator. Augustus called himself the first citizen, and the sixth month of the year in the Roman calendar, Sextilis was named after him. August has 31 days, just as July, because the Roman Senate decided that both leaders were of equal prestige. These are the only two Roman leaders whose names lasted for 2,000 years in our calendar. I wish my name could last for 2,000 years. Wow, you never know. Maybe you'll get a month. <laughs> so what's the sun up to? Well, the sun rises at 7.29 on the 1st of August, and earlier and earlier every day is that on the 31st of August, it will rise at 6.48 a.m. a.m. not p.m. and is setting at 5.25 p.m. on the 1st of August and later and later till 5.54 p.m. on the last day of August. And the days are obviously getting longer. Not so good for us astronomers. In August, the Sun transits first the zodiacal constellation of Cancer and then moves into Leo on the 18th of August when it stays until September the 17th. Wow, that's a long constellation to go through. The zodiacal constellations are those stars visible behind the plane of our solar system, but 8 degrees each side of the ecliptic. This is why we say they form a band in the sky called the zodiacal band. Since the Sun is transiting both the space we call Cancer and Leo, it means we cannot see the stars in these constellations. They are behind the Sun. Need to remind everyone that it is dangerous to look into the Sun. Unless you've got a solar telescope that is well maintained and is designed for looking at the Sun and then you're okay to look at the Sun. Like we do. Exactly. 
the sun in Leo means only one thing opposite the sun that is 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiacal band is Aquarius. Aquarius will rise just after sunset and will be visible all night long. The Milky Way is so striking here in New Zealand that in the absence of a polar star, we believe everyone should find directions by. August is another one of those months where you can admire the centre of the Milky Way crossing the zenith at about 8pm. This is quite awesome here, which means that if you're not a, a late nighter, you can come straight from work and do astronomy starting at 6pm. That's fantastic, and we've been doing that all week. We have. When it's at its highest, the Milky Way stretches here from north to south through zenith. It's like a surf of stars on the sky. The top of the wave is the center of the galaxy. This is happening right now, so you better find yourself some dark skies and prepare to be amazed. Here in the southern hemisphere, we have such a different perspective. The south celestial pole is leaning towards the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. We are all used to talk about Milky Way as being a river, but I'm going to challenge that. Here is like the surf of the planetary ocean. That, I don't know, Carl Sagan was talking about the planetary ocean. Stars on the surface. Surface. And yes, in the Northern Hemisphere, we can say it looks like a river. The reason being is that in the Northern Hemisphere, Earth's axis is pointing towards the edge of the galaxy. The best you can get is a resemblance to a riverbed. Scorpius doesn't come up more than 30-40 degrees above the horizon, so you don't get to see all that galactic bulge at once. Many ancient references call the Milky Way a river. Latins called it Via Lactea, the Milky Way, literally. Well, I bet uh, our northern hemisphere friends will relish having a river at the moment, given the heat wave they're going through. Uh, or come and visit us. Exactly. So next time you visit the southern hemisphere, or if you're already here, take a moment and pay attention to the Milky Way. Follow it south to bump into the Southern Cross. This is in the wake of the Milky Way. Follow it north and you'll see Altair and Vega near the horizon. Distant harmonies of the north. Scorpius and Orion. Let's talk about Scorpius and Orion. Uh, they're mortal enemies in ancient Greece, hence they've been placed in an opposite part of the sky, or at least that was their mnemonic. Scorpius and Orion look like nothing that would indicate they can symbolize a scorpion or a human, actually. Scorpius does, but uh, with a little bit of imagination. They must have good imaginations in those days. They must have. At this time of the year in Aotearoa, the Maori name for Scorpius is the Matawa Maui, the fish hook of Maui, and it drags the Milky Way to Ikaroa, the big fish, from the sky all night long. Orion, to, to be fair, it does look more like a fish hook than it does a scorpion. It does look like a fish hook. Orion, the hunter, is upside down to what you'd be accustomed here at the antipodes. Perhaps that's why everyone's calling here a pot, talking about calling names. But you can see why the stars resemble a pot that you put on a stove. Orion is in the morning sky and you can admire it for a few hours before sunrise. The ecliptic marks the plane of our solar system bearing these zodiacal constellations. The ecliptic is a great circle on the celestial sphere, representing the sun's apparent path during the year, so-called because lunar and solar eclipses can only occur when the moon crosses it. Well, as seen from Wellington, the ecliptic runs through the northern part of the sky. In Europe, it's, we see the sun in the southern part of the sky. That's why everyone here looks for houses that face north. Very close to the ecliptic are Spica in Virgo, Zuben Agenubi in Libra, I love this name. Antares in Scorpius. 
and Algeri Prima, Algeri Secunda, Dhabi Major and Minor, and the Neb Algeri in Capricorn. The ecliptic intersects the Milky Way in Scorpius and Sagittarius. What stars are in the Milky Way? Let's have a look. Well, starting from the centre of the galaxy, going north, Shelda, the Stinger of Scorpius, Caus Australis, and Nunci in Sagittarius, a beautiful, cute star, Ioannina in Scutum, and then Altair in Aquila, and the beautiful open cluster, Cotinger, in Fulpecula, and Albireo, and Vega. Unfortunately, the last three objects are very close to the horizon, Especially in our hilly Wellington, it would be very hard to see. I especially like the coat hanger because I can say coat and, and it looks like a coat hanger if you look at it with mm. binoculars. But it's upside down here. Exactly. Need, need, need I well, say. Well, <laughs> There are some objects that are circumpolar to New Zealand and we can see them all night long. What does circumpolar mean? Circumpolar objects are the ones that rotate around the celestial pole. These objects are above the horizon at all times at a given latitude. For instance, the plough is circumpolar to Britain, but here in Wellington we can't see it at all. It's hidden by the Earth. We could if Earth would have been transparent. Here on the other hand, we have the Southern Cross with the pointers that are circumpolar. The Diamond Cross and the False Cross are circumpolar too. Canopus and Arcana are also circumpolar. The same for the Magellanic Clouds, the Mega Centauri, 47 Tug, Jewel box, the Southern Pleiades, Gem Cluster, and Omicron Valorum. Hey, what's 47 took? It is an amazingly beautiful globular cluster, on a par with Omega Centauri. And, you know, some people think it's better, other people don't. Well, it's my favourite, actually. I think it's better than Omega Centauri, but let's just leave it here. It's much smaller, though. Yeah, it is much smaller, but it's got a very cute star that makes the difference. Hmm. The Southern Cross and the Pointers are still in a good position to see. Doesn't have a black hole. No. <laughs> Being circumpolar, it means they turn around once every 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's why they're always somewhere else in the sky. Very confusing for someone who's from the Northern Hemisphere like me. But if you look roughly south, that's all you have to do. They'll be there. Around mid-August after sunset, the first of the pointers, Alpha Centauri, is at Meridian. Imagine 12 o'clock on an imaginary clock of the sky. And the Saturn cross will be the hand marking 1 o'clock. By 9 o'clock, the real 9 o'clock, the Saturn Cross will be marking 3 o'clock. Confused? By the same hour, Canopus will be due exactly south. At 4 degrees altitude, it will be hard to see unless you have sea in the open horizon ahead of you. Now what's interesting is, if you get up really in the morning, before the sun gets up, of course the Southern Cross will be pointing directly south, roughly this time of year. So, just keep an eye on it, it's a moving feast. Like a clock. (laughs) It goes round and round and round. If you could imagine one there. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Visible objects on the south circumpolar lead, I called it a lead because I think it looks like a lead rather, are 47 Tucane and the small Magellanic Clouds, the Southern Pleiades, Eta Carina, and NGC 3532. Also known as the Wishing Well cluster, because it's what it looks like. Someone threw a hollow corner of the Wishing Well. It is beautiful there. So many amazing, beautiful objects in, in the night sky. We were looking at them the other night with the binoculars and the telescope, and it was just phenomenal. And we invited all the neighbors. Well, it's amazing between Southern Cross and the Southern Pleiades, the, the number of clusters, the nebulas is fantastic. I always said if you don't yet have a telescope, you might as well forget about getting one until you learn your constellations and your binocular targets. 
as it's as much fun as deep sky photography. Star hopping is fun too. So learn those directions first and then you'll see they will come in handy later. So as we were saying, the night sky is absolutely fantastic here and the center of the galaxy, the center of the Milky Way is by far the best to observe this time of the year. It's round, it's big, and it's almost overhead. And it's got two planets, Saturn and Jupiter. Jupiter actually comes first because, again, it's upside down here. So Jupiter is on the side of the galaxy with Scorpius, is actually near Antares, and Saturn is in Sagittarius. And so Saturn's about two hours behind Jupiter. Um, so if you leave your telescope parked looking at Jupiter and go inside, watch the TV program, make a tea. As we're doing it hot chocolate. We have coffee doing it. Um, then Saturn will be in the eyepiece. We did have hot chocolate the other night. That's very nice. We have a recipe will be on the website. Yes. There is our favourite dark sky catch, dark Milky. sky um, sign. Milky Way Kiwi. Milky Way Kiwi, which is at the centre of the galaxy and has the galactic black hole almost on its head like a crown. Right, balancing it. Yeah. Balancing it, yeah. It's actually the whole reason we have a black hole is because it sits on the head of the Mikiwekiwi. And that is fabulous. And again, here in New Zealand, you can go to a very, very dark sky region and you can see, or at least I thought I saw it with the naked eye. It's kind of hard to see unless you know what to look at. The other famous dark patch is the Colsack near the side cross. The Colsack is also known as the Flounder, which is the Maori name for it. And indeed, if you find a truly dark sky, you will see the resemblance. This one, you can see it easier than the Milky Way Kiwi. Right next to the Colsack is the beautiful cluster, the Jewel Box Cluster, also known as NGC 4755. And that is a really beautiful cluster. And actually, if you've never seen gem cluster, which is on the other side of the arena, then check that one out, because they look kind of similar. I think the gem ones are the nice. It's a bit rounder. Yeah. We've got more stars. Whereas, actually, the jewel box has a triangular kind of like shape to it, which is beautiful, and it's got those three stars that we call the traffic lights. I think both clusters have their own beauty. Well, I think gem doesn't get looked at much or spoken about much because of its um, very bright, elaborate name, but... Whereas uh, the jewel box is uh, just sitting next to a big dark compass guy. And of course, um, all these big goldies are last but not least. It's a Karina. It's as amazing as ever and it's very easy to find, very close to the Saturn Pleiades. All you have to do is go to the right. And of course, right now, when the moon is uh, diminishing on its way to being a, a new moon, um, Eta Carina really, really stands out. Even in central Wellington, you know, with our light pollution, you can still see the the, the lovely shapes of the uh, gas clouds and the shadow, shadow is fantastic. And with the Magellanic clouds, only the small Magellanic cloud is visible properly. The large Magellanic cloud is in the lower part of the sky, so you have to look at it through clouds, through atmosphere, hills, hills, hills and yeah. all that. The neighbor's house. Neighbor's house, yeah. But um, the small Magellanic cloud is beautiful, and you can see all those amazing stars if you if you look at it even with binoculars. And with the naked eye, you can actually see it with the peripheral vision better than anything. And you do have to be careful if you do want to look at the large Magellanic cloud this time of year, um, because if you are pointing your telescope at it, your neighbors may need some convincing that you're not pointing at them. Yeah, that is very true. And 
with that magnificent view in mind, not of the neighbors, but the beach. <laughs> <laughs> we are signing out and wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars. From Wellington, New Zealand, Haritina Mogoshanu and Samuel Liski. Wish you a fantastic August. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net or Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or go to the Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. Or YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Or Flickr at flickr slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts, the addresses on the website. Thanks to Jonathan Pober for that uh, excellent interview. The editors were Lizzie Lee, Naomi Sabre Fimpong, Tian Bezaidno, George Bendo, and Deepika Venkatu. The producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, Jonathan.